folks, welcome back to the Wisdom Nutrition Podcast. Today I'm sharing an interview that I recently did with Professor Anthony Hall, who is the Professor Emeritus of Globalization Studies at the University of Lethbridge, or I, say, I should say he was, he's retired now, uh, but that university is in Alberta, Canada. And we have a wide-ranging conversation about the Middle East and the ongoing Israel-Gaza situation. So this interview, even though I've recorded it before my most recent article and podcast episode, which is uh, based on this long, in-depth analysis I did of the October 7th attack. Uh, in a way, this conversation serves as an embellishment of that piece, and it also gets into uh, some content that I'm going to be going into in f- further articles. Um, so I have a little series planned here. Uh, but we're going to talk about October 7th a bit. We're going to talk about the larger historical context, geopolitical context. And I originally came across Dr. Hall's work uh, by referencing his piece called The Genocidal State of Israel, which he published on his Substack and also on the website globalresearch.ca. And uh, I really liked his article. It was comprehensive in a way that I'm aiming to be in this overall series. And so uh, I contacted him. He agreed to come on the podcast and had a really enjoyable conversation. So I want to share that with you today. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview with Professor Anthony Hall, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay. All right. So I'm going to record a separate uh, intro now, t- after we're done. Yeah. Um, Tell me but, where you are right now. Yeah, sure. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Oh, Richmond. Yeah. Where the famous song. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I have family up in D.C., so I spend a lot of time in D.C. as well. Yeah. Oh. Um, and then uh, tell me a little bit about, about yourself. I see that you're the professor professor emeritus of globalization studies at the University of Lethbridge mm-hmm. in Alberta, Canada. And I'm I'm curious to know a little bit about your background before we jump in. Obviously, the, the t- main topic we'll be talking about is the current situation in the Middle East with yeah. Israel. And uh, but before we do get into that, yeah, let me hear uh, or interested in hearing a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so... Um... So I'm a Canadian. I uh, grew up in Toronto. I did my PhD in uh, at the University of Toronto uh, in Canadian history. Mm-hmm. I uh, became professor of Native Studies or assistant professor of Native Studies in Sudbury, Ontario at Laurentian University. And uh, then I was invited to uh, join the uh, department of Native American Studies at the University of Lethbridge. So that's where I started. And then I looked at the Canada and then the continent and then the Western Hemisphere and started to look at the world with respect to different colonization processes Mm -hmm. in relationship to indigenous peoples. And in uh, the period around 2007, 2008, I had a graduate student, Joshua Blakeney, and he read all my uh, books and stuff. And uh, he he really wanted me to look at, into Israel and apply the sort of methodology of looking at indigenous peoples in that uh, part of the world. And looking back, it's kind of a quaint and 
nostalgic, but at that time I told him my thinking, my thinking was, well, Josh, you know, we usually leave that subject to the Jewish professors uh, because it's, you know, very contentious and some of them do a quite good job. And, uh, and he kind of looked at me with disgust <laughs> and uh, caused me to sort of look at myself in a mirror a little bit. And uh, so I thought, sure, well, it's kind of wonderful when a graduate student sort of wants to expand the trajectory of what they've gotten from you and take it into new terrain. So uh, I started to look at it that way. And uh, meanwhile, around that time, I was getting interested in uh, 9-11, um, the character splitting the sky, sort of for, you know, he wanted me to look into that. And uh, I did look into it. And uh, so I started to get uh, sort of off the beaten path. I found students in, uh, enjoyed it, appreciated it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started to do a, uh, a, a video show with uh, Kevin Barrett, um, False Flag Weekly News. And we were looking at false flag terrorism. And uh, increasingly, the subject of Israel would come up with respect to false flag terrorism. And I'm thinking for this talk, uh, a perspective that I would like to sort of emphasize is that the real high level power, you invent your enemy. Mm -hmm. Because who your enemy is, really gives a lot of latitude to how you define your projects. Mm -hmm. And if you can find an enemy that helps you to realize the, a larger project that wouldn't be conceivable or wouldn't be reachable without that enemy, you know, that is clearly what's going on now. Right. Like, you know, you see Hamas. Oh, we're, we're just trying to rid ourselves of Hamas, eradicate Hamas. Well, wait a minute, you invented Hamas. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the record is becoming very clear. Netanyahu, Netanyahu was very interested in Hamas. And in, in fact, it came out in a report, you know, he, he had a symbiotic relationship. Right. And, you know, if you think of uh, Netanyahu, he's built a career on kind of inventing and manipulating and exploiting Islamic terror, mm -hmm. going back to the uh, meeting in Jerusalem on international terror in 1979, when his brother Jonathan died in uh, uh, Uganda uh, and uh, in, in, in a terrorist event, suppose a terrorist event. So that gave the Netanyahu family a lot of prestige. His father was a professor uh, of, you know, taking a working with Jabotinsky on the very far right extremist wing of Zionism, uh, where you, uh, you know, you're not going to negotiate with the indigenous people. They're never going to give up. They're not, never going to see themselves as, you know, not the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's where he started. And then of course, as you start going into nine 11, well, if Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda didn't do it, and by right. the way, Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda are constructs of the CIA. Right. Uh, and uh, with and actually, there's a lot of parallels you can draw between 9/11 and and 10/7, and in a way, they're mirrors of each other because the role that you're describing with Hamas, 
is -hmm. the same relationship dynamic that U.S. intelligence has with Al-Qaeda and a number of other militant Islamic groups in the sense that they're really cultivated as assets. And like you're just like you're describing earlier, those assets allow you to define the enemy, but also define the terms of the war, you know? So these assets become the basis of this whole war on terror uh, for the United States in the same way that uh, the Hamas militant group, which is like you were saying, deliberately empowered and fostered by Israeli intelligence allows for a like permanent military state to be created in Israel. So it's very similar. Yeah, I'll keep going with this since you seem interested and it seems to be something that we are thinking along the same lines here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole lead up to 9-11 with Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden as, as assets, you know, the whole idea of overthrowing the Soviet-backed government of Afghanistan. Right. Uh, which, you know, was a, an instrumental event in ending what they called the Cold War. You know, I, I'm very interested in the role of Bernard Lewis, who moved to uh, from Britain and was kind of a professor, an orientalist. He was the sort of famous uh, nemesis of Edward Said. And uh, he was, uh, you know, orientalism was studying how to colonize people in the Near East, mostly Muslim people. So he was an expert at at studying Arabs and Muslims and Persians and Turkey, especially. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I kind of see him as a key who brought from the British Empire all this long history of uh, intervening covertly in the Islamic world and playing on divisions within the uh, Islamic world to achieve uh, imperial objectives. Mm-hmm. And he imported this, I think, into the White House through uh, Brzezinski. And so Brzezinski gets the credit for, you know, sort of inventing this idea of an Islamic army, uh, right. which was really a kind of a mercenary army, mm-hmm. and then building up this appearance that they're on a religious mission to overthrow godless communism for American consumption. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, they've sort of mobilized now. They're in the game. Uh, Brzezinski writes this book, The Grand Chessboard, oh, yeah, and says classic. it's all about Eurasia. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, so so there is Netanyahu, well poised. He's he's re- publishing books already on international terrorism, and uh, so so the manipulation of Islamic, you know, patsies, assets. Mm-hmm. Mercenary forces, ISIS, Daesh, Al Qaeda, uh, you know, some of the Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia. There's Netanyahu in the very center of all of this, exploiting it. Mm-hmm. I, I like to call him the Napoleon of the global war on terror. Mm-hmm. And this Bernard Lewis comes up with this paradigm we don't have the Cold War anymore. We need a, no, a war. So let's have. A, a clash of civilizations right and then uh, uh huntington popularizes the idea but it seems to me behind it all is this bernard lewis and the whole invention of osama bin laden and al-qaeda and the whole idea that we have to immediately after 9-11 go to afghanistan of all places right and never mind studying what happened and looking at what the wall street people were doing 
you know, on the lead up to 9-11. Right. Suddenly we're diverted into Afghanistan. And uh, so who invented this whole PSYOP? Because as you look into 9-11, you find, well, it wasn't Al-Qaeda and uh, Osama bin Laden. It had a lot more to do with the project for the new American century, right. which was this sort of big come out party of the uh, neoconservatives mm -hmm. who uh, you know, had been infiltrating since the days of Ford and Reagan and, and uh, largely uh, uh, Zionist. But, but, you know, they've got a few, uh, I think it's all right to use the word Shabbos goys, you know. I mean, not all people engaged in Zionist politics are Jewish. Right. One of the very big constituencies is Christian Zionism, right. which is in incredibly instrumental in all the things happening right now. So um, this idea of uh, inventing an enemy, you can, you can also read this into um, COVID, which turns out to have been a kind of invented thing. Right. Um, and it was kind of like a false flag event. Yeah. Only this time the enemy was not, you know, Muslims with rocket launchers. It was uh, something in a way much more insidious because, well, it's your body, it's your health, it's your entire environment, it's everybody's right. environment. Uh, you, can, you can shut down the whole world. You can ruin the economy and start the you know, trajectory towards the Great Reset, which is largely a banking uh, manipulation right. that is taking place. Um, and uh, so, and there's Netanyahu face to face with uh, Bourla, Albert Bourla, making a special deal with Pfizer, which, you know, ama amazingly, the idea of using the Israeli people as test tube rats right. or laboratory specimens for a medical experiment and we're all being you know we're all learning about the nuremberg code hey right. this and this violates the all that stuff that came out of auschwitz dr mengele and all of that stuff and suddenly well forget about that just that's right. nothing it kind of you know it, to me that kind of poses a great big question mark if even the people in israel say oh don't worry about the nuremberg code um well, what are we all supposed to be making of this all our lives? We've been told, you know, there's a story and never again, and we must never forget. And we must always adhere to the principles that emerge from this, you know, lesson of history that showed how brutal human humanity can be. Mm -hmm. So let's not forget that Netanyahu is emerging from all of this experimentation, which was going on in all our countries. All the right. governments of all our countries were all making the same mistakes simultaneously. Yeah. You know, doing all the same wrong wrong things in unison. And it's, it's interesting. It's not, it doesn't really, with the COVID, it doesn't break down along the lines that we normally analyze geopolitics. Because even the so-called enemy like Russia and Iran and, you know, the, the ones that are supposed to be against U.S. policies they were all lockstep also in it. So there was an incredible amount of global coordination at a, at a very yeah. deep level uh, when it comes to the COVID incident. Um, and then China in this kind of peculiar role where it seems to be so, sort of part, you know, one aspect of China is thoroughly integrated with the United States. Right. Um, and, you know, the Walmart, phenomena of you know right. the selling cheap stuff from china yeah and uh, a small american uh, elite get very rich from this uh, but then you deindustrialize 
America, which right. you know we're seeing seeing the implications of now. Anyway, this this idea of inventing the enemy, and of course you can even go into the Cold War and say, well, you know who who made the Russian Revolution happen? Who financed it? Uh, how did it happen? You know right. how, how how was it done? And then you you're led back to, you know, all Wall this uh, funding from Wall Street, which mm -hmm. uh, Anthony Sutton has you know written books about yeah. and. Um, Kuhn Loeb is that famous company, and it's all sort of tied in with establishing yeah. the Federal Reserve, which, you know, it, let's face it, the Federal Reserve is in line with the Zionist scheme to create Israel mm -hmm. and to make the U.S., you know, a sort of military power on behalf of Israel's uh, aspirations for a greater Israel, as it turns out. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the history of Zionism. Uh, you know, through through the Rothschild stream, through the banking stream, through, you know, then Israel takes on this special role in history. Um, and then there's Netanyahu weaving his way in and out of all of this. Right. And that brings him to, um, you know, the politics of uh, Palestine and Israel. And, you know, there we see that this uh, thing called uh, the Palestinian Authority is an outright puppet regime. And uh, Arafat was probably pressured by the US and Israel to appoint Mahmoud Abbas, uh, to, you know, has his successor as Fatah and PLO. Um, so, um, you know, suddenly now you hear the United States, well, now we're going to bring in Palestinian authority to negotiate on behalf of all the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And of course, so so my experience in Native American studies, I mean, and colonization around the world, I mean, you're always figuring out how to have, you know, invent your own enemy. And then uh, maybe, you know, you have an enemy, but then within that enemy, you have a group that you control particularly and, and inflame the enemy that you want to have. And yeah. Um, so, so the whole history of Hamas and the whole history of what really happened on October seventh, which I think is spun out of control. Right. You know, it, it, it's it's as weird. Like the 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 official story is just as audacious as nine eleven. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it seems that as long as the media sticks together, as long as you know, it doesn't matter how weird the story is. Right. Uh, you can put it across to people. And the Christian Zionists, you know, are celebrating the death of Palestinian babies as something that Jesus is made very happy about. You know, it, it's incredible the, 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 the mind-twisting operations uh, taking place. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so, so when I was doing this uh, uh, show with Kevin Barrett, I don't know if you know Kevin Barrett, who's M Islam himself, he's Muslim. He's a white guy. He was uh, fired from his job at the University of Wisconsin for teaching 9-11 properly in his mm -hmm. Arab studies class. Anyway, um, I was, uh, you know, a senior tenured professor at the stage of my career where I figured, well, I'm going to talk about what I think I need to talk about. And mm -hmm. nobody's really in a position to tell me what yeah. the curriculum is supposed to be. And this is, you know, that stage. Anyway, Lo and behold, I was smeared. A ugly Facebook thing was planted on my Facebook page. A fraud. Uh, 
you know, but I was put on the defensive. I was publicized all over the place and I was uh, suspended without pay, without any due process, fully tenured, you know, in 2016. And then I, then I uh, went through, you know, head to head with Bene Brith, Bene Brith, somehow Bene Brith, which is, you know, anti-defamation league of Bene Brith, mm -hmm. which goes back to, you know, early 20th century or even Bene Brith, you know, 1843, I think is founded in New York. So this organization uh, takes me on, but then they somehow persuade my board of governors of my university, somehow buy off the whole board of governors. And uh, so we go into court and uh, actually I was reinstated through a, a court decision in, in Alberta. Wow. But anyway, I, I, I did from 2016 to now, really, I kind of look at it like I got a kind of crash course in what the Zionist lobby is, mm. how diverse it is, how it works within the media, how it works within the judiciary, how it works within the legal profession, how it works within the university. I think my university was sort of under the radar screen. It's not U of T or McGill or, mm -hmm. you know, or Harvard, um, uh, but it's a nice little university. But anyway, I, I was, you know, I had a good period there where I was developing, uh, you know, feeling quite good about the kind of responses I was getting and mm -hmm. kind of uh, um, publications I was able to put out there. And then just suddenly I was invented as the Holocaust denying anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist professor mm -hmm. who, you know, nobody had really heard of, but suddenly, you know, my name is out there. That That's uh, uh, the reputation uh, that uh, one has to sort of live with and um, navigate with. So I must say that I do feel like I've uh, I, I've I've been through the uh, mill a little bit. You know, eventually I I got to the point of I did I was able to retire, not be fired, and uh, so I was full professor. So I retained the title of professor emeritus. Mm. So that's where it becomes kind of significant that I'm able to say, you know, I'm not. I didn't used to be a professor. I am a professor. Right. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, the, the kind of things that we're talking about together, um, which I don't think, judging from your response, I don't think you feel this is like all that way out there. It's kind of sort of stating the obvious. Yeah, in, absolutely. In ways. Um, and uh, uh, so so anyway, I'm also, you know, it caused me to to study, for instance, cases of how uh, Benny Brith, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, would go after academics in universities yeah. and, uh, you know, tr take over the discourse in universities. And what we're seeing now is uh, Jewish students in, you know, Ivy League universities saying, geez, I don't feel safe. This is terrible. The, your, our institutions are becoming, you know, meccas of anti-Semitism. Well, maybe when you're sort of the first sort of hugely publicized case of genocide in history with a sort of ruthless baby killing agenda and some people get offended, right. uh, maybe the biggest thing to consider is not your hurt feelings because people are questioning your attachment to the Jewish yeah. state. And so, uh, you know, yeah, we that's, are that's, that's part of this attempt to align Israel with Judaism rather than as a political project and 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 with zionism i mean there was a there was just a, a thing in congress where they tried to formally equate the two but the idea of zionism as a a type of extreme judaism in the same way that 
you know, some of these extremist Islamic sects are extreme Islam, but to whitewash that away and just say, no, Israel is Judaism. Zionism is Judaism. So well, people, it's hard to, like when people say, oh, I feel discriminated against as a Jew or there's anti-Semitic stuff. It's really anti-Zionist stuff. And they're equating the two as being equal, it seems. Yeah. However, you know, Zionism uh, formally gets, uh, you know, launched. Well, that's, you know, it goes back to the 1880s already. Edmund de Rothschild is uh, developing, uh, you know, Jewish co-ops and agricultural settlements in Palestine. And then, uh, you know, Herzl takes it up and makes it uh, sort of official with his book. But it was a, a Rothschild project from from the beginning. Mm hmm. And does, uh, uh, you know, fit into, uh, you know, that whole trajectory of history where banking became a tremendously central part of, you know, European structure and war, making war was the big bonanza for right. uh, money making because, and, because uh, the, you know, the... funding both sides, you know, creating enemies and getting uh, people fighting with one another. Right. Uh, this became you know, the, the, the sort of art of things. So, so I uh, really think that in order to understand, you know, Zionism in its present form and Zionism, which doesn't just have respect to, you know, Israel, because Zionism in, infiltrates every country uh, it wants to draw into the project of building uh, Israel up into some kind of world imperial center. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's in the, local politics of so many countries and you can't become a leader of the opposition party without passing through zionist vetting mm -hmm. uh, for instance or get good job in the pentagon or on the media without passing through zionist vetting um, but really the talmud and you know going into the babylonian period i mean where uh, there is this uh, definitely a supremacist uh, edge to this Talmud, Talmudic tradition, mm -hmm. uh, you want people to be fighting among themselves. You like uh, disharmony and you like uh, war and and you exploit it. And definitely, you know, as as the chosen people, as the as God's favored, as uh, you know, the 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 God who tells you you have to go out and kill Amalek you know, which Benjamin Franklin, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Netanyahu um, uh, emphasizes, uh, you know, there, there, there is this element to it. There's a supremacist edge to it. Uh, and it's like Jewish supremacism. And, uh, you know, Mayor Kahani, you know, he was a sort of prelude to it. Now you've got this Ben Gavir, you know, head of um, national security. You've got this whole uh, sort of menacing development where we've got to pull down Al-Aqsa Mosque yeah. because that's the site of the third temple. And the third temple is going to somehow, you know, bring us back to the days of Solomon and uh, we'll have the Sanhedrin and there'll be some kind of world court there. It'll be some kind of imperial capital and the glory of, uh, you know, the um, Yahweh will be, will be expressed there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it's it's a really uh, megalomaniacal agenda, uh, uh, and, and it's for real. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it sounds almost um, fanciful. It, it's so extravagant, 
and yet there it is. It's it's playing itself out, and and somehow Hamas, which must have a some, it must have some integral part of it that is authentic, that really does grow out of, you know, the uh, sense of injustice and betrayal and uh, brutality that. Palestinian people have experienced and and want to find a way from. I mean, I find it uh, that that's a hard one to a, a hard a, a line, a kind of a high wire to walk in a way because you want to acknowledge that it is an incredible demonstration of will to have uh, gone through with that and you know broken out of the prison and. Uh, and uh, you know, and let's remember that the Hamas, their their uh, priority is to capture Israelis and keep them alive, right? Not go on ridiculous murder spree and rape and pillage and cut 40, 40 heads off of forty babies and right. and do you know vengeful, terrible things just for the sake of it because they're yeah that that kind of thing would be counterproductive to their mission, which would be yeah. a hostage exchange ostensibly. Yeah. And then then I think of, uh, you know, people who ran out of the uh, out of the holes in the wall and, you know, not all of them would have been disciplined, trained right. Hamas fighters, uh, custom brigades. Right. Um, so it's possible that, you know, your um, garden variety Palestinian young men did get out there and, and just do some um things with the idea that you know you've destroyed my life my parents life my grandparents life i've never seen anything but this square mile and i'm going to you know do get some revenge and probably some of that did actually go on and there was there's Um, also the palestinian islamic jihad which is a more militant group than hamas in the popular coverage everybody just says hamas but there was actually two groups plus the third party of your your kind of non-formally trained person coming in there and causing havoc but the the palestinian islamic jihad is the more militant of the two and some of the atrocities could have also been attributed to uh to -hmm. that group but are being blamed on everything's essentially being blamed on hamas well then um have you covered the idea that it's in the article that you've uh, read um that uh CNN and Reuters and New York Times and people working for them apparently had prior knowledge yeah. of uh, of what was going to happen on October 7th. And so they could exploit that prior knowledge to be in the right place at the right time to get coverage and to get photographs and things. And, uh, and then, uh, so that has been reported here and there. And then... Uh, is his name Donnie Danon or Lenny Danon? The uh, he's Irish. He represents uh, Israel at the UN, and he came out with a tweet saying that anybody who had prior knowledge of October seventh and exploited it is going to be eliminated. So rather than just laughing off this and saying, oh, you know, it's it's just a rumor, it's crazy. Uh, it's kind of acknowledged. And I kind of look at that as saying, well, it's saying, you know, if you knew anything before uh, October 7 and you say anything about it, you're going to be killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so it, it, you know, it, I, I have the feeling it's sort of common knowledge in certain circles 
right. that this and then you know then we you know there were reports from egypt right. qatar or and then you know what is the role of qatar in governing hamas or you know shifting money from one place to the other and in, in, in for this kind of operation so you know there's a, a a really intriguing story the real story about october 7th Mm-hmm. And of course, the idea that you commit these te- this terrible, obvious, ruthless genocide based on a pretext. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you made it happen or uh, or or knew about it and let it happen and didn't say anything, um, you know, th- there's a real ethical, moral, legal dimension of this right. uh, to this, uh, which, um, uh, you know, Blumenthal talks a little bit about. Max Blumenthal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then he talks about how involved the military was on the day of October 7th, uh, because there was a, what did they call it? The Hannibal Doctrine, right. that uh, you don't want Palestinians to get hold of, especially military personnel, because they you can bargain with them. Mm-hmm. And, of course, nobody will bargain with a group that's called a terrorist group. Nobody will formally uh, bargain with them. Um, you might do it, you know, in a symbiotic way, like Netanyahu was obviously right. doing. Um, um, but uh, anyway, so that that's uh, uh, the the October seventh thing is a, is a is a is a mystery. And of course, you know, to hear Netanyahu says Netanyahu, he says, well, of course, it's going to have to be looked at, and uh, you know, and and people will have to give evidence, even me. But when is it going to happen? Oh, sometime in the future. But just as with 9-11, it happens. And then within like a matter of days, the U.S. Armed Forces was in Afghanistan. I mean, it might have been a couple of weeks, but they were obviously ready to go. You spring into action. So it doesn't really matter what happened. Just the fact that you say it in the first instance, it's believable enough to be accepted. And then, you know, you end up with like investigations like uh, um, Zelikow, you know, who's a prime Zionist professor of history and a study of public mythology and everything. He just writes the report on 9-11 like a fiction story. And it mm-hmm. is a fiction story. And I think the who did the fiction plot, I think it's pretty clear. It's probably Bernard Lewis, you know, who is inventing this whole thing with his experience in the British Empire coming into the White House, uh, you know, inventing the whole thing with uh, uh, using uh, Islamic army to uh, expel, you know, the regime, uh, the communist youth Soviet-backed regime in Afghanistan, and then, you know, moving into this next stage. I mean, 9-11 was really the kind of seeds of this whole thing because it sort of sets out, well, we don't do investigations, uh, you know, we we use emergency measures to just change all the laws. We don't have a rule of law anymore. There's no innocent till proven guilty in the name of uh, preemptive uh, intervention. So nothing gets investigated. We'll investigate it later. Right. But meanwhile, we'll act in on a, a, a theory and change the course of history right. and obligate and install a trajectory of events which lead inex- inexorably towards uh, an objective that you've already preconceived. Right. This, you know, this brings us back again and again to inventing your own enemy mm-hmm. and then inventing the 
scenario that your your puppet enemy is going to follow. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to comment on. One of the ways I, I look at Netanyahu in a sense as a type of Zelensky character where he seems to be Washington's man. Like, like this, this the way I look at Israel, it's really a vassal colony of the U S I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, but you know, it's not self-sufficient unto itself. It requires this support and this protection by the United States in order to exist and protect U S oil interests and political interests in the middle East. So how much do you think the U.S. is behind Netanyahu? I mean, clearly they're funding all this and sending them weapons, but is his political career really the orchestration of Washington and the Pentagon and the sort of deep state, U.S. deep state? I think that's a very significant and important dimension of it. Uh, so he is essentially a leader of the United States, uh, you know, embraced by the political class of the United States is one of their top people. And, uh, you know, he, he, his father taught at Cornell. He went to high school in uh, Philadelphia. He went to MIT. I mean, he did his high school and university in the United States. He, right. you know, he seems culturally, linguistically American. Uh, American. Yeah. So he has sort of uh, become an archetypal you know, he, he embodies the, the marriage of these two cultures. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, it was a big part of the British imperial policy to um, embrace what they called Christian Zionism, like Balfour and Lloyd George, and they called them Christian Zionists. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, you know, there, there, there's this phenomena called the Anglo-American Empire. Mm -hmm. And living in Canada, you know, I'm very conscious of there's a kind of continuous um, uh, interaction where the British Empire kind of slowly becomes the U.S. Empire. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so, so, so uh, you know, in World War II, the United States emerges uh, right. as the dominant force by far, you know, but meanwhile, it's been sort of set up for this role. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there there were places in Toronto where the British were teaching, you know, the CIA things and, you know, James Bond and all of that culture sort of mm -hmm. happened in and around Toronto with the British uh, training the Americans to take over the empire. Um, and, uh, and the, um, idea of God's chosen people. I mean, the Israelites, uh, the founders of New England figured that they were Israel. They were God's chosen people, mm -hmm. that they were coming to the promised land uh, in, you know, what became New England. And uh, this sort of uh, divine um, chosenness sort of seeps into American culture and manifest destiny that this isn't uh, just because we're so intelligent and industrious and warlike. Uh, we're we're actually um, given by God some kind of uh, trust to spread democracy and uh, human rights. And uh, you know we're not really fighting the Indians. We're participating in a process of civilizing savages and bringing mm -hmm. uh, you know take up the white man's burdens and forth the bestie breed. Uh, says Kipling, encouraging the Americans to take over from the Spanish in the Philippines. 
Um, so, so uh, you know, there is this sort of biblical, mm -hmm. theological uh, element that Israel can sort of see itself in 1948 in its war of independence, you know, uprooting the indigenous Palestinians and taking control of the land and the society and, and, and continuing that uh, scenario, you know, to this very day. In fact, almost taking the Indian wars uh, far beyond what the Indian wars, you know, far beyond what they were to kind of a new level of sort of illusion, illusionary um, progress, you know, a, a kind of supremacist, you know, let's face it, it, there's a racist dimension to it. Like the people right. who built up Israel are mostly European Jews, right. Ashkenazis. And uh, so, you know, the to, to say people are anti-Semitic, well, the most anti-Semitic right now are the European Jews who are killing the Semite Arabs. You know, right. they are exercising anti-Semitism on a scale never before seen. And it does, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the, the industrial system of murder in Auschwitz and the gas system. And, you know, to get to the six million number, you, you describe this industrialization of murder. And, uh, you know, what we're looking at now is a classic case of industrialized mass murder. And, you know, is it really 17,000 or whatever? It's must, we, must be higher. Know, it, it, yeah. You just look at those rumble, you know, those yeah. piles of that just fell down on top of people, and and uh, and who's there to count anyway, and who's there there to watch, uh, and then this idea that you target journalists and you kill their families, I mean the the extremes, and and you target UN workers, and I mean it's pushing outright blatant criminality, murder, and genocide to, to new frontiers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not it, it, it's not replicating old patterns. It's setting new uh, patterns. And, you know, we've seen in the past that how the Palestinians get treated tend to be a marker for how larger processes are going to unfold. Mm -hmm. You know, bringing in police and military to study how Israelis pacify pacify like torture kids uh right. torture people eliminate people um and and then other countries you know send in their representatives to study that so they can take that back right. and when they, they face dissident groups people that are not in harmony with the you know the agendas of the state they get that treatment too mm -hmm. so you know as you watch this you think okay now if this is being depicted as if this is okay this is uh acceptable behavior you know what are children going to learn how are we going to be treating each other in the future um you know that that we internalize this and we become um instruments of it you don't have to just take everybody to you know cia headquarters and train them for this we're, we're actually being trained for it in, in uh you know through this sort of mass media culture mm -hmm. um so so it, it's it's just and and to see you know the reality that it doesn't seem anything can be done about it you know you see this group of politicians here or there oh we're going to get a document we're oh section 99 you know of the un charter uh, you know 
but I mean, it's so little, so late right. under the circumstances. Uh, you know, we were, well, Hezbollah, I, I still think Hezbollah, you know, and I, you know, one thing I should mention is uh, in 2014, um, I did go to Iran and I've been to Iran a few times and they do have meetings over there to hear from dissidents in Europe and North America. And, uh, you know, so, so I, I, I do uh, have that uh, perspective. Um, and uh, so, you know, where is Iran in all of this? Um, where is Hezbollah? Yeah, it's that's the big question, because I would have assumed by now there would have been a more substantial counter reaction. And I'm wondering if there's a sense among the, the sort of grand strategists of these other nations like Iran. Well, obviously, they, I think they know that if you do anything with Israel to stop Israel, you're really drawing in. You're almost being drawn into a trap that the U.S. seems mm. to be setting so I think that could explain part of the hesitancy. What's your opinion on that matter? Why do you think that there has been such uh, lack of a response among the neighboring countries? Yeah, uh, especially uh, the Arab countries. Um, well, you kind of look at this. I mean, it's such high stakes, high stakes, not just for your own national interest, but the for the future of the whole world, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, there's such a... a um, uh, instruments of mass destruction element to it, you know, high tech and, you know, including nuclear weapons, but not only nuclear weapons. Who knows uh, the top technologies of mass murders that we've never even heard about so far. And you you do get a sense that, you you know, the, these superpowers, they get one when, it, when if, if they're going to pull the plug or turn the switch mm -hmm. and commit they get one one go at it, right? And they better get the timing right. Mm -hmm. But but still, the fact remains that day after day, week after week, we're watching this, and it's underlined that we have no mechanisms to stop this kind of thing. Right. We don't really have law when it comes to the higher levels of lawlessness. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there are people who are above the law, and you can see the kind of a uh, a sense of the Israeli armed forces and Netanyahu and come on, we know, we know who we are. We know who these people are and we know they're not going to do anything. And it's almost like taking relish. You know, we, there, there's a certain sadistic pleasure in it all because yeah. we can do this. We know nobody's going to stop us and they're right so far. But th there does seem to be uh, see, the thing about these, foreign regimes though is that they have their own uh domestic political situations that i think are the longer this goes on the more unstable those become i'm wondering if the situation with this with the al-aqsa mosque i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right but the mosque in jerusalem this famous this famous mosque that is important to both the zionist uh, jews and also the the islamic peoples is this is the sort of destruction or takeover of that mosque that mosque is that the point at which these other countries and militaries around them will no longer be able to justify uh, staying out of the conflict? Uh, well, uh, you know, there's a certain uh, poetry to a site in Jerusalem becoming the trigger point for the, you know, apocalypse, for the mm -hmm. end of the world kind of thing. Uh, and that Al-Aqsa site 
that was the site where Muhammad, he somehow time traveled or from uh, Mecca to that rock. And there's a dome built over that rock. Mm -hmm. And he communed with uh, Abraham and Moses and Jesus. And one thing that's not really appreciated much is that uh, Muslims actually do embrace Jesus as a prophet. Mm -hmm. And there's a big place for the Virgin Mary, for Mother Mary in Islam, uh, where, you know, it's not the same on the on the Jewish side. Like we talk about the Judeo-Christian tradition, but, you know, the, 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 those Jews who decided to not go along with Jesus and Paul, you know, they, they, they have a dislike, a distinct dislike for Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's part of the Talmudic tradi tradition. Um, so uh, the, the role of religion in all of this um, and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Iran is a theocracy and it's quite something to, you know, see how a theocracy works and live in a, in a, in a theocracy when, you know, we, we grew up with this idea that, well, that's, uh, that's kind of backward. You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're enlightenment people, we're secular people. We, we've got beyond that stage. Uh, but then, you know, when you see a society, um, you know, it's a very educated society and it's it's really the last bastion of a place that hasn't been transformed into rubble because, you know, they stand up for themselves. They have missiles. Um, um, so. Um, uh, How long did you spend there? I've been there about five or six times. Okay. And, uh, you know, made friends there and, uh, you know, got, you know, I've been a host of the government. So, you know, they're putting on their best face a lot of the times, but sometimes you can, you know, walk off and be in, you know, un, uh, unobserved and just look around. And it's a society that seems to work pretty well. There's a sort of a resentment that a lot of people feel that, you know, they they don't like having to be forced into religious observation or making right. re religious observances. And, and you know, there there is this sort of a soft culture attraction to the Big Apple and yeah. you know, they see the American films and, and, and uh, um, so, so um, you know, there's a certain amount of unease with uh, uh, the prevailing system, but then it's also, you know, nice not to, I don't know, see little, you know, eight-year-olds dressed up as hookers, you know, like right. kind of do in, in this society. You just don't see that. Right. I'd say I'd feel, you know, safer walking around the streets in Tehran than in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, um, and, you know, and and uh, the, the people like Nader Talibzada, uh, he was the host of these new Horizon conferences. He was a thoroughly, uh, he, he just died recently. He he's, uh, went to Colombia. He grew up in the United States. You know, he he was able to um, manifest, you know, a totally American personality, but with a deep uh, understanding of, you know, how the well the high level military um, considerations of what uh, Iran has to do to defend itself. And if, you know, if ever there's a country that sort of needed, uh, you know, deterrence because they have a lot of enemies it would be iran you know i did go to uh, an event and uh, the north koreans were there and they were saying you know basically you guys need nuclear weapons and we know where you can get some you know 
Um, um, anyway, uh, uh, but this, uh, you know, to see this uh, coalition developing where, you know, when I was started going there, yes, Iran had close ties with China. I'd meet a lot of Russians in, in Iran. Uh, and uh, so this uh, triumvirate of Iran, Russia, and China uh, coalescing now with this BRICS and Global South Coalition, and now with uh, a growing number of uh, countries and peoples rest of that, the U.S.-dominated dollar and the U.S.-dominated system, you know, that there, there is this alternative uh, matrix of power, mm -hmm. uh, and, and this word multipolar is used. Although it was Goldman and Sachs that came up with multipolarism, uh, or, or it was BRICS, actually, the, the, the term BRICS, you know, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, and uh, South Africa. Um, and uh, so anyway, there is, is this emerging uh, counter um, power to, to the U.S.-Israel empire um, and, uh, and the uh, Silk Road, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, all of that, uh, uh, you know, it's very interesting when you go there and you hear people talking about building uh, new communication systems and new ports and new networks of commercial activity. And you think, well, we don't hear much about that for our side. What we hear about is more debt and more wars. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, th there does seem to be in that Russia, China, Iran um, triumvirate and the countries that are latching on to it, including Saudi Arabia with connected now to Iran. That's quite mm -hmm. a development. It's quite right. a feather in the cap of China that they pulled that off. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I guess, uh, people, uh, have hope for the future and don't want to see, don't want to see it all go up in smoke and, and are holding back. I guess that U S, uh, you know, it, 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 it was constructed to make us all fearful. I mean, it, it's largely psychological, this massive military that the U S system has, I can't help thinking, though, that, you know, this was all planned out. This all goes back to 1913, mm -hmm. that the transformation of U.S. into the world's dominant uh, military force, which, you know, it's now questionable, but that was all planned. Now, yes, you asked pr pr previously, you know, did Israel emerge as a sort of adjunct of U.S. power in the Middle East? That's definitely the history of it. But then you start to feel that, well, is who's who's calling the shots? Is the U.S. become a kind of colony of, of Israel, really? And it's not really Israel devouring, but this Zionist construction right. has seems to have devoured um, the United States. I mean, you, you can't get ahead. You, you know, if you're a careerist of any form, you, you have to accept that narrative or you're not going to, you know, have right. a... Well, you know, my, my feeling is that when we talk about the deep state in the United States, there's a lot of levels to it. It does go deep, go back deep. And, but one of the dynamics of having a, a so-called deep state or a covert government is that it has to exist and exert its influence over an, an outer official government that has to maintain legitimacy and be the face of the country. And my feeling is that Israel and the Zionist lobby is the one of the instruments that this deep state uses to funnel 
influence back and get its policies that it needs without directly revealing itself and promoting uh, its interests directly to the politicians. So I, I do ultimately see uh, the U.S. being still the, the hegemon. And I feel like the great fear about the U.S. and its military power, because obviously there's a lot of erosion going on, but where the U.S. strength lies is in its uh, secret weaponry. And and it's sort of vast unknown capacities that that both techno both like digitally in terms of its control of the digital space, but also uh, sort of exotic or unorthodox energy technologies and things like that, which I think are probably the most feared aspect. If I if I was a foreign government like Russia or whatever, it's that unknown aspect. That's is there is there favorite. a possibility of keeping secrets now, especially. Uh you know, secrets that have to do with uh, digital communications and digital processes. I mean, my understanding of Israel is they have put great priority into developing um, spying mechanisms on the internet, that the internet is basically open to their observation anywhere, anytime, you know, all kinds of, of back doors. And, uh, and uh, you know, who, who is there in the United States to maintain this secrecy, to uh, be, you know, maintain the integrity and the allegiance to the system uh, or allegiance to some kind of higher set of values and principles? Um, and, uh, and this comes back to the question of legitimacy. Um, you know, seeing what I'm seeing now, um, how am I supposed to find any legitimacy in elections, right. in, uh, you know, law enforcement, when you think, uh, you know, the FBI is an instrument of, you know, Democratic Party or the Zionist mafia or whatever, the, the, there, there's no, nothing resembling a law enforcement um, element of the FBI now. It's a complete political torquing right. system. Uh, and, you know, CIA, ditto, um, you know, I, I had a site called uh, American Herald Tribune that was deplatformed by the FBI. <laughs> so uh, that, uh, that, that, that's a story in itself. I was working with a colleague in Iran on it. And okay. um, um, anyway, so uh, um, so this question of legitimacy, um, I don't know where I would find legitimacy except in this kind of milieu that we're we're in right now where um you know I've, i haven't met you before uh, uh but uh, you know it just seems that there is a a sort of discourse that we share a a sense of uh being on the outside looking towards the inside and yet realizing in a way we're the only game in town mm -hmm. because you know there is a sort of genuineness or legitimacy in in the kind of things that uh you know we're we who've you know suffered for it um, uh are, you know we're still able to continue and uh mm -hmm. and we kind of recognize who one another are and um um and so there, there's a hope in it and then uh but but it's also um you know you, you have to find some kind of way to you know, you're you're not going to get Nobel prizes and Pulitzer prizes and uh, 
you know, chairs uh, in prestigious Ivy League universities and all that. I mean, anybody who has that, you kind of look at them and say, well, they must be, you know, sold out. They must be totally compromised in some mm -hmm. way. And, you know, they're totally compromised. I mean, the Epstein phenomenon is that's what is that what is going on now with the Western power saying we, we can't do anything. No, or it's not it's not pretty. But, uh, you know, do they have tapes on you? Um, how far does that how, how far does that go? Right. And how do we find legitimacy in and amongst this sort of rubble heap uh, of civilization as we used to know it? Right. Um, uh, and yet here we are. Um, acting as if uh, it makes sense to try to <laughs> talk about the present. Well, one thing much. I think about is since with 2020, the COVID and this current situation in Israel, if there ever was a point where you could reinsert justice and reinsert yeah. the law, the entire exactly. leadership class of the West is implicated. Like that whole cohort of leadership would all be ousted. Yeah. And if you could just have the law be applied, you would have a, a total revolution in the governance of all these countries just because it is, it's so well documented at this point how complicit in crimes against humanity and just breaking the law of their own domestic governments, every single leader in every single Western country yeah, and a lot of non-Western countries were in particularly COVID, but in this one as well i mean there would be a full clean slate yeah and i think that's yeah the... that's a very good point and let's I'll, I'll just make some things explicit that you're implying uh and i imagine you agree with me from what you're saying but let just to be explicit um you know the there really was no menace of covid19 there was no killer virus that came out of nowhere and right. mutated in some strange way and was going to kill everybody. And so the WHO declaring a pandemic in March of 2020, I mean, that was a fraud. There was right. no evident, evidentiary base for it. You know, we would have been much better off to just say, well, there's something, this is a new type of flu or something, or maybe there's something with, you know, occasionally has some very extreme manifestations, but you know, the the COVID crisis was the because of the responses, because of the government responses and the media responses that made everybody hysterical, that uh, uh, sort of suspended the rule of law and made it seem like such a huge emergency that you could do anything. And so, uh, you know, maybe there was a constructed bioweapon of the virus or maybe not. I'm tending to think Maybe not. Maybe they were working on it. But the real bioweapon was the injection, right? Uh, the mRNA injection, which is really a genetic modifying um, instrument developed under the auspices of the Pentagon that had nothing to do with trying to cure some virus. It was a bioweapon meant to start a process of depopulation, injuring people, enfeebling people. Uh, making them sickly and weakening the vitality of the human population and what we're like what we're seeing in Gaza weeding out mm -hmm. the, the human population so this uh, bioweapon disguised as a cure for a fatal disease 
pretty cynical when you look at it that way. How many have been killed so far? Is it like worldwide? Because, you know, 6 billion people have been injected with 14 right. billion of these shots. Is it 10 million dead so far? Is it 20 million? Is it 50 million? Is it 100 million? And why don't we know? Wasn't this right. supposed to be some big scientific thing that was, you know, and oh, no, but we didn't keep any records and we don't want any autopsies. And we certainly don't want people talking about it even now. Uh, and we don't even like to see, you know, people who are who are injured getting together in little groups and uh, talking about, you know, what what they're trying, what they're living through, the hell they're trying to live through just to get people to take them seriously, that they really are sick. And it really was the injections. So, you know, it, it, it's unbelievable that we're at this point. And that's the huge level of crime. Mm-hmm. And Netanyahu was right involved, you know, yeah. in Israel with Pfizer, but Pfizer was really just playing along with uh, a military operation who was really doing, doing, I don't know if you've looked at the work of Sasha Latipova and um, Catherine Watt and, uh, and, you know, there's, there's, there's revelations, but you know, it's not well publicized. It's kept quiet in 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 in, in an important ways. So that's the crime wave mm-hmm. that you're talking about. That's the that's the power grab, because this wasn't you know this was done with all you know to lead to you know digitalizing everything, vaccine passports, the the, the way our, our money works, removing cash, so everything is going to be done digitally so every transaction is known and if somebody's behavior is not acceptable you can just turn off turn a switch and turn off their money and turn off their ability to get food or whatnot we already saw them do that with the truckers in canada you know the trudeau doing this with the truckers so that's the first level of crime and reiner fulmick who was the sort of chief prosecutor in all of this who came in early in the day do you know what i mean Reiner Fulmick, a German lawyer um, who beat Volkswagen and Deutsche Bank in famous cases, he took over the sort of central pivot role of interviewing everybody and having open hearings uh, into the nature of the crime taking place, the PCR test that didn't work, that built up this whole imagery of a, you know, cases rising, and uh, you know that was the foundation. He's exposed all this he's in jail right now and uh so so much for our criminal prosecution right um uh, and and, you know how is it to unfold and who's who's talking about it because do any of these western leaders that we say are implicated and have broken the law but do they talk about it do we see this discussion and i don't see it in my parliament well all the parliamentarians uh one of the leading president, one of the leading presidential candidates in America, uh, John F. Kennedy, or Robert yeah. F. Kennedy Jr. Excuse me, he's actually been really great on the topic, and he he explicitly points out. Now he's not good on the Israel topic, but on this one yeah. he is very good, and he's actually somebody who does point out uh, some of the key elements, which is that the, the the companies like Pfizer were actually contractors; they were the outer outer face of this project yeah. and it was the military industrial complex yeah. the u.s military industrial co- complex which was actually the driver of the whole thing 
the Department of Defense. And, right. uh, and he's getting that from Sasha Latapova, who I saw him interview. And oh. uh, she's on Substack. Um, and uh, so she can easily be checked out, Latapova. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, we're behind the black ball on that one because where are the investigations? And, you know, every week that goes by, or where are the investigations? The criminal investigation. And the criminal procedures, that's what we're talking about. Now, this case in Gaza is a classic instance of genocide, as defined in the Genocide Convention, which was basically put together by Raphael Lemkin. Uh, he came up with the term genocide in 1944. He came from Europe, where he was watching uh, you know, things happening, untoward things happening that he, uh, he wrote about in a book called uh, uh, Axis Controlled Europe in 1944, introduced this term. And in at the United Nations, he brought he, he worked with nation states and they came up with the Genocide Convention with a very explicit definition of what genocide is. Five points, you know, like each five or ten words long. And this thing going on in Gaza clearly unequivocally classically textbook case classically fulfills every element of the genocide convention mm -hmm. and they could be prosecuted by according to craig murray um you know whose name always comes up with respect to assange she records the trials in, on assange and was a, a british ambassador to uzbekistan I, I think anyway he lays it all out in a very important article that I discussed in that article you looked at, um, that uh, the international uh, criminal court is shit. It's corrupt. It's a US puppet thing. It's not going to get to the bottom of anything. It's all optics. It's all theater. But there is the International Court of Justice, ICJ, that you could take this charge of genocide there's 149 members countries palestine is one of them palestine could take this case and just takes one to say we want to look into you know is the genocide convention being violated and it could come from palestine except it would have to come to the from the palestinian authority which is a puppet regime of right. the united states and israel so they're probably not going to do it, but it could be Venezuela, it could be South Africa, you know, it could be many countries. So all it would take is one country to step up to the plate and probably you would get a conviction because there's no way you could defend. Uh, it doesn't seem to me there'd be any way to avoid it. That's what many scholars have looked at this. So this is this is a slam dunk if that is is broad. And that mm -hmm. would be a monumental thing to yeah. have that hearing, to have that come out. And then it would raise the questions, uh, you know, because complicity in genocide is also um, a ju justiciable um, offense. And so, you know, if you're selling, if you're just even aware of it, not saying anything, you're kind of complicit in genocide. And what about the countries? Well, what about, you know, United States? If Israel is 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 doing genocide isn't the united states supplying sure. them with all the weapons the money and everything else and all the other countries and then the banks and the and the uh, pr companies and all all the spin doctor operations and everything going on 
they'd all be complicit in genocide. And then the ICC would have the task of deciding who who should be charged. And uh, but you know then there would be a, a, a finding of guilt. So so just as you said, just as you introduced this, we're at the moment where this COVID matter merging with this Gaza matter, demonstrating that the rule of law is completely non-functional. There's no reason to give it any credibility. It's all a fraud. Mm -hmm. You're a bunch of frauds. You're just milking a system and you're play acting to the, you know, your own discredit and ruining uh, humanity's chances uh, to make something of ourselves, to put ourselves back together. You know, you're a disgraceful bunch, but you happen to control everything right now and you're mind controlling us. Uh, but it seems to me that all this division of, you know, that has been, you know, we fall into it. Oh, you're a masker and you're an anti-masker and you're a black and you're a white and you're gay and you're straight and all these many ways that were divided and sliced and diced. But the issue of do you support this genocide in Israel, Palestine, or do you not? That is real. That division is real. That is authentic. Mm -hmm. And we should be making the most of that division. This one divide is real. This isn't manufactured. This is as deep as it gets. Do you have any ethical principles as a human being? Or have you given that up? Are you so attached to money and prestige and um, being friends with you know your peers that you don't give a shit about human life anymore? But this category is real. This division is real. And it just seems to me if we don't make something of this and rise to the challenge of saying, we will not tolerate this. You're, you've just gone way overboard. Your institutions, you know, just like we were told by all these colonized people, oh yeah, you talk a big line, you know, human rights, uh, universal rule of law, but it's all just a hoax. When it comes to the bottom line, you're frauds. And uh, we have to divorce ourselves from you one way or another. Um, and if you're gonna kill us and put us in camps and you know inject us and make us crazy, well, you know, I guess you have the power, but uh, anyway, I, I, I think I'm, I'm spent. I don't know what I can say after that for an encore. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. <laughs> there is one, one last thing to finish up I would like to talk yeah. about that we haven't gone into. We haven't talked yet about the idea of the greater Middle East and this this idea of a, a sort of expanded territory for Israel. Is there anything you can mention about Eretz, this sort of Eretz, larger Eretz, project? Yeah, I mean, that's the Likudnik vision, Eretz Israel. That goes back to Jabotinsky, who ben, Benjamin Netanyahu, his dad was his secretary. You know, he was big in the 1920s, Jabotinsky. Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Shamir. Yitzhak Shamir actually didn't want to be with the uh, British side in World War II. He wanted to be with the German side. And, uh, you know, so it, it has a fascist character. Um, and uh, Shamir was a two-term prime minister of, of Israel. So this idea that uh, there's a greater Israel and Israel doesn't have any fixed borders, uh, which you know, the United States was 
like that. Um, Canada wasn't really like that because Canada took over the Hudson's Bay Company, you know, that big expanse to the west of the populated areas in the Great Lakes area. Um, you know, the, there was already a kind of a British claim going back to 1670. So it was, a, but the United States was, you know, it, it just, 13 colonies came together and and extracted themselves from the British Empire because of Indian law, by the way, but certain Anglo settlers, they, di they didn't want to adhere to the British law that was going to slow down their Western expansion and cause them to have to make deals with the Indians along the way. Um, so the U.S., you know, has that shared experience of a borderless kind of polity. And, you know, and then, then there, there was the idea, well, really the, the continent or the whole hemisphere should be America. Like mm -hmm. America isn't a country. America is a hemispheric um, description, right? And, you know, so I, I kind of feel, well, hey, I'm in Canada, but I, I'm an American. Like the United States can't monopolize, you know, people in Paraguay, people in Mexico, people in Chile, we're, we're all Americans. Um, so Israel is sort of reenacting that drama, but it's reenacting that drama in a time when that uh, narrative just cannot be made acceptable, try as they might, that, you know, that this master race thing that they're doing, which is, it, it's, you know, and Zionism is, is about supremacism. It was about Jewish supremacism. And the Jews that are supreme among the Jews are mostly European Jews. So it's even white supremacism right. within that Zionist category. Um, and and uh, so let's hear you, you know, try to muzzle that, try to obfuscate that, but that's what you have shown and surely, you know, that is not an acceptable future for the world. And uh, so uh, this imperial project, I mean, that was one of the things about 1967, which was the time of decolonization. European colonies throughout the world were, you know, taking control of their own governments. Mind you, they were betrayed in many ways by the banking system because they became subject to a financial kind of imperialism. But in theory, you know, countries all over Africa and different countries in Asia were becoming independent countries. They were decolonizing. Mm -hmm. At the same time as all of that was taking place, Israel was going to war in, you know, Palestine, which was being remade into Israel. But there was this part of Israel, which was supposed to be the Arab state because the creation of Israel in 1947 through the resolution 181 laid out a map a partitioned map between two states so in 1967 the uh conquest of the idf of the israeli armed forces was to take over those sections of the map that had been reserved for an arab state Mm -hmm. And so the and that includes Gaza and the West Bank. So the Israel claim to that territory is dubious because, uh, well, at first, it, it's no longer legal in the higher laws to, to claim land by conquest. 
you can claim it, but you know, would it stand up in court? But do courts really matter anyway? Right. And obviously Israel sort of operates, you know, they're just they're just theater. We have them to look good, but um, but anyway, so so this conquest in 1967, at the time of this period of decolonization and uh, you know youth movement and Woodstock and peace, love and uh, all of that, Israel is uh, doing its imperial thing. You know, it's not a, a war of liberation like was taking place in places like Algeria. Um, so, so Israel has to kind of keep alive the legitimacy of this old Anglo-American narrative of supremacy. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're trying to do. And that's why we're talking together because we don't like it. Right. All right, well, let's wrap things up there. It was wonderful to talk with you. I'd love to have you back on another time to go into some of these other areas that we have uh, shared interest in. And also to keep track of developments in this current situation. Yeah, if you uh, send me a link, I'll put it up on my Substack. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, thanks very much. Thank you. Edward. Yeah, you took a took a chance, took a shot in the dark. Here we are. Yeah. Let there be light. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Cheers. Have a good one, mate. See you. See you later. Bye. <laughs>